0: Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Beverly Hills Cop, starring Eddie Murphy, Ronnie Cox, John Ashton, Judge Reinhold, and Lisa Eilbacher. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be covering something very different for the show, a beloved Bollywood classic, The Three Idiots. Search it on RealGood.com or in the RealGood app to find where you can stream it. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for a weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, we welcome a new guest to the show, the host of the aptly named Daryl Smith Podcast, Daryl Smith. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me. And hello there, Mr. Mr. Duncan, too. Also, nice being you for the first time.
0: I'm glad I'm not being referred to as Mr. Duncan in that sense.
1: <laughs> well, well, Thomas, I just want to mention, the name of my show, i sorry if you don't mind me saying, it's the Daryl Smith Podcast Show, Our Voices, Our Views, Our Generation.
0: Well, thank you for that clarification. We'll add that in uh, to the show notes. And make sure that we have a link there for you if anybody wants to check you out. But since you are a first-time guest on the show, we always put you through a slight hot seat. So first question up, Tell us about yourself a little bit and uh, why you love movies.
1: Lifetime of uh, Milwaukee, born resident Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Like I said, I, I have my own podcast show that's been on since, it'll be a year, this upcoming August, since it started, uh, with Elsie Fernard, as we all know, phenomenal individual, the podcast town. Uh, like I said, the show is uh, geared towards individuals in my generation who are Gen X's. Uh, for adults, it's not geared only, but it's geared towards individuals like that. In my generation, I think uh, the forgotten generation, the topics I think uh, that my generation can really relate to firsthand. I love movies uh, going back to when I was a kid in the 80s, all the way to now, uh, especially going to the cinema to watch the movie when it comes out, eat that fresh popcorn, uh, maybe get some, uh, you know, maybe some nachos and chips or something. This experience being the obvious in the theaters, and I missed that this past year with the pandemic. But this year, the movies are coming back to the theaters I'll be be in the theater a couple times this summer
0: to say the least, definitely. Yeah, I would share that enthusiasm. I haven't found the right one that will really draw me back into going to a theater. Uh, I'll probably end up going to see F9 here in a couple of weeks, and that might be my first real entrance back in. But I'm just glad to see that things like A Quiet Place 2 or Cruella or whatever it is, is drawing people back in. And just to see cars around the theaters again is a really nice treat uh, for movie uh, enthusiasts like ourselves
1: most, de- most definitely most definitely another thing
0: keep in mind guys
1: top gun the sequel is finally coming out this year sometime i think around so it was supposed to come out last year but i think it's, it's coming out this year the sequel is coming out for top gun
0: that is correct it was supposed to come out last year they did have to hold it like most other things because it's a big blockbuster for paramount but uh, unfortunately, Daryl, and I hate to burst your bubble on this, you're not going to find two people that dislike Top Gun more than these two right here. What? Yeah. Oh my.
1: Oh my god. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I'm, I'm I'm flabbergasted.
0: Oh, I know. We're we're very much against the grain when it comes to that. When it comes to Tom Cruise movies, I'm always against the grain. My favorite Mission Impossible is not. The last one, Fallout. It is actually Rogue Nation, which I think most people overlook. I thought it was a better one. All right, Daryl, what is your favorite movie then, and why?
1: Oh my God, that's a tough question. I don't have just one favorite movie. Obviously, I love Bill Be- Cop, The one we're going to talk about today. It runs the gamut. I, I love uh, Flex. The first Flex with Chevy taste. I love Caddysack. We talked about the phone. Me and Thomas, we talked a few months ago. Love Caddyshack. Oh my God, I love uh, Bad Boys. The Bad Boys series. Particularly the last one that came out, that came out last year, I was very impressed. It was a very good movie. And uh, oh, I want to mention, too, one of the things I like about a movie, especially if I've gotten older, I like a movie that, that has a really good story. Like, it's really story-driven and character-driven, where you have a good premise, where it's, it's written very well, where you know the characters and what they're about. There's a cause-effect to everything. There's a reason why people become the way they are. It happens. It's just, it to happen by a happen chance. Everything in our lives makes us who we are. Good like I said, great character development. It's gotta happen. If we don't have a good plot, I can't get into the movie. But also, I love uh I love movies like like the I like um the first coming to America, not the sequel. The sequel was kinda disappointing. But anyway, coming to America, I like um die hard series. I love I do like Ramble, and I do like Cobra, which so I know you said about Ramble, but I like Cobra. I love I love uh, the Rocky series, all the Rocky series, and the Creed movies. Action, drama, comedy, a little bit of everything. I'm more old school than I am the current stuff because I think some of the a lot of the current stuff is not to me movies that came out recently, except for Creed one and two, the last years, and a couple of the movies that are recent that I really got into. Overall, I'm more of an old school type of guy.
0: Fair enough. I mean, this is the greatest movie of all time. Uh, We go back as far, I think the furthest we've gone so far is about 1940, but we do plan to go back even further than that. So older movie fans or classic movie fans are certainly welcome here. And normally I would ask at this point, you know, what makes a good movie for you? But I think you already touched on that. So let's just move into the rest of this movie. So dad, with that, do you have a plot summary
2: for us? I do. Young and reckless Detroit Police Department Detective Axel Foley. Eddie Murphy, in hot water for an unauthorized sting operation, travels to Beverly Hills looking for the murderer of his, his childhood friend, Michael Tandino. With unlikely alliances between himself and the straight-laced Beverly Hills Police Force, Sergeant Taggart, John Ashton, Detective Rosewood, Judge Reinhold, and Lieutenant Bogamil, Ronnie Cox, Michael and his other childhood friend, Jenny Summers, lisa eilbacher are caught in something much larger than one murder can the renegade cop and the by the book police work together to stop victor maitland cast for this movie eddie murphy as detective axel
0: foley judge reinhold as detective billy rosewood john ashton is as sergeant john taggart lisa eilbacher as jenny summers stephen burkoff as victor maitland ronnie cox as lieutenant andrew Bogamill, and jonathan banks as zach Apparently, he isn't good enough to deserve a last name in this movie. Recognition for this movie, nominated for Best Original Screenplay 1984. This film was number 22 on Bravo's list of 100 Funniest Films. It was also nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies. It was number 63 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs. And Detective Axel Foley was nominated as a hero for AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains. The soundtrack was released on MCA Records and won the Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media, 1986. The instrumental title tune, "Axel F., composed and performed by Harold Faltermeyer, is a cultural touchstone and has since been covered by numerous artists. The soundtrack also featured the song Neutron Dance, performed by the Pointer Sisters, which became a Billboard Top 10 hit, and two Patti LaBelle hits. New Attitude, which hit the top 20 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and the Grammy Award-winning Stir It Up. The album was mastered by Greg Fulginitti at Artisan Sound Recorders. The film stayed at number one for 13 consecutive weeks and returned to number one in its 15th week and making 14 non-consecutive weeks at number one, tying Tootsie for the film with the most weeks at number one. The film earned... $234 million in the United States being the highest-grossing film released in 1984. Adjusted for Inflation is the third-highest-grossing R-rated film of all time behind The Exorcist and The Godfather. Did you know? Eddie Murphy, John Ashton, and Judge Reinhold improvised most of their comic lines. Literally hundreds of takes were ruined by cast members, actors, or the director laughing during the shooting. During the Super Cops monologue, Ashton is pinching his face hard and looking down in apparent frustration. He is actually laughing. Reinhold put his hand in his pocket and pinched his thigh really hard, trying to prevent himself from laughing. Did you know? To cast the roles of Rosewood and Taggart, the director paired up various finalists and asked them to do some improvisation to get a feel for their chemistry. He paired up Judge Reinhold and John Ashton and gave them the following direction. You are a middle-aged couple, married for years. You have a conversation on an average evening. Reinhold immediately picked up on a nearby magazine and the two improvised the five pounds of red meat in his bowels bit almost exactly as it eventually appeared in the movie. Did you know? During his tirade at the Beverly Palms Hotel, Axel pretends to be writing an article called Michael Jackson sitting on top of the world for Rolling Stone magazine. In real life, Playboy ran an article called Eddie Murphy sitting on top of the world. Did you know? The movie was written for Sylvester Stallone, with the character of Michael Tandino as his brother and Jenny Summers as his love interest. Did you know? According to Stephen Burkoff, in a UK newspaper interview, Sylvester Stallone quit the film because of disagreements about the orange juice for his trailer. Did you know? Sylvester Stallone said he left the project because he didn't think audiences would accept him as a naive fish-out-of-water cop who was new to the lifestyle of Beverly Hills. He also didn't like the inclusion of comedy, and didn't feel he was suited for it. Did you know? This is the first of seven Eddie Murphy movies in a row to open at number one at the box office. Did you know? The shooting script was literally pasted together from the many scripts written for the project over the years. When they were stuck, Eddie Murphy would just improvise new dialogue or create a scene. Did you know? The completed movie made such an impression on Paramount executives that they committed to a sequel moments after the first private executive screening of the completed film all right so with that daryl you picked beverly hills cop what do you think this movie is about what essentially would you suggest if you were to suggest this to a friend how would you describe it basically the movie is about
1: eddie murphy who was uh this movie made him a superstar and uh made him a superstar like he is now or has been and uh basically he's a cop that uh is action, drama comedy he, he saves the day he comes from one city goes to another city Solves a murder of a uh, longtime friend who got killed coming from out of town, and and, and a good mixture of uh, comedy, action, drama, good storyline, good plot, great soundtrack. Basically, it, it defines the mid '80s.
0: Certainly, and I probably would think some of the same things. I had it down as really kind of a fish out of water situation. I think one of the biggest parts that plays out in this particular movie is the dichotomy between a inner city Detroit cop versus the very prim and proper upper echelon, rich white people, Beverly Hills cops. And I I think that's really where the movie kind of uh, makes its comedy is the, the digression between the two or how they understand each other in an unlikely team up. But dad, what
2: did you think? Action comedy, uh, an opportunity for Eddie Murphy to be, his at his very best as a wise cracking, I guess, wise cracking cynic.
0: Yeah, I guess. And for the pieces that I've watched, I had a tough time with uh, Delirious. I never really watched Raw, but from the pieces that I remember from Delirious, he was very much an observational comic. And I think this gave him some room to do a lot of the observational race relations comedy that he
2: was known for by that point in '84. I think this movie, more than any other, shows or exemplifies what his comedy routines were at that time. Certainly. All right, so let's just move
0: forward. And I'll, I'll do this like we did last week's episode. Does anyone not have Eddie Murphy as their best performer?
1: Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah, he, he's going to have a hard time saying no one's going to say that.
0: With the amount of things that he would have had to do to carry this movie, and we talked about it in the Did You Know section, but... Just from the standpoint that he pasted together or simply made up portions of the script that weren't complete, he should almost get a writing credit for being in this movie. I agree with that. So, since we all have Eddie Murphy, though, let me see if there are any things that are worth highlighting specifically
2: why he's the best
0: performer. Dad, what did you have down?
2: Every scene he's in, he has to uh, many times turn on a dime. Something happens that uh, he may get caught or he may have to come up with it. He just instantaneously changes into a voice, into a character, into, uh, a, you know, starts a lie right there. And it, it just does it seamlessly and smoothly throughout the film. I seem
0: to remember, I don't know, at least four or five different instances where he is just the most supremely confident person and seems to have every situation in the palm of his hand that he can either weasel his way out and he knows exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to say it, or he can uh, simply, I don't know, he's got an answer for everything. And from just that standpoint, the cool, calm customer, I think he makes this a starring role where in a lesser hands, I don't know if this would have worked in the same way.
1: I agree, Thomas. Thomas. You know, mommy said, particularly the scene when he first got into Beverly Hills and he checked, tried to take it to the hotel. And he said he was a reporter covering a story, story from Michael Jackson, how uh, he went off and said, and the, you know, they just say the N word. They won't let nobody in there involved. And then all of a sudden, the, the manager came up and said, We got a room available. And he was able to make that to create a scene because you know, if he know, if he said that, which he did, it would cause a reaction like it did. And then it worked out for him. He got a room for 2.35 a at night. And then and in the movie, He he didn't have to pay for
0: the bill at all. Personally, I'll point to the one that I I thought was one of his best (laughs) improvisations. Uh, Tell Victor that Ramon, uh, the fellow he met about a week ago, tell him that (laughs) Ramon went to the clinic today, and I found out that I have um, herpes simplex 10 and I think that Victor should go check himself out with the physician to make sure everything is fine before things start falling off the man. I mean, you would not expect that of Somebody in the 80s, let alone even now to a certain extent. But just to be able to make that up on the fly and feel comfortable enough in Beverly Hills to get away with that uh, seems like, yeah, you completely have this character and are in control of everything that's going on right now.
1: That's a good one, Thomas. That's a good one. That's a real good one.
0: So, Dad,
2: who did you have for best secondary performer then? Uh, John Ashton. I thought his cantankerous portrayal but with yet some element of comedy throughout it was kind of a catalyst it was Murphy playing off him it was Cox playing off him it was uh Reinhold playing off him he he had an ability to be a straight man but still draw laughs by just his uh facial expressions and his exasperation he was constantly having to feel in the situation he was uh, involved in
0: yeah, he certainly for the normal pairing as we talk about in comedy, he was more of the straight man to Rosewood's fat man. Even though the roles, I guess, as physically portrayed, were completely opposite. Daryl, did you have a down a different secondary performer?
1: You know, I agree with your dad. I, I think that John Ashton, his character uh, Taggart, I think he was a great straight man because you have to have a like a guy like Eddie Murphy do a proposition, but You have to have a straight man. They can all counter counteract that, and Ashton was straight you know straight laced in the movie, but he also had great face, facial expression express when he went when he went to the strip club. Uh, it was it was <laughs> it was timeless in the strip club. But he was able to draw laughs like your dad said, but he was able to be straight and be able to have uh, give intelligence to the movie that it needed. I think.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree. I think that he and the pairing of Reinhold actually kind of made the second half of this team up in I guess what becomes an archetype of the buddy cop situation that we'd end up having a ton more of these types of movies. You know, you want to talk about lethal weapon or some of the other buddy cop going into the early nineties type of, uh, archetype. I ended up having down Ronnie Cox though. And it's for one very essential reason. I think he has the most difficult job outside of Murphy to perform in this movie. He has very limited scenes He's not in the movie very much. When he pops up, he has to be the biggest force in the room. And he has the biggest catharsis of anybody in the course of the movie. At the beginning, he has to be the questioning hard ass that has to toe the line and be by the book. But by the end, he has to make such a natural cause through the very small scenes in which he is in order to make it believable by the end of the film that he's willing to go off book and then lie at the end in order to cover their asses. And I think that natural change is not something everybody could have done.
1: You are right about that, Thomas. He did evolve throughout the movie, even though he was he was in limited scenes. But that's I thought he I thought he could have been in more scenes. But again, it was more based off of Ryan hole Ashton, and Murphy, their connection, and not so much him. He was kind of uh, the authoritarian character. Besides the chief of police that came towards you know that in the movie, whatever.
0: But I think he's the additive to replace the, I guess, hard ass that Ronnie Cox is in the beginning and to say that there's, I guess, now another foil to them being able to say, all right, we're going to go a little bit off book uh, because in this particular instance, we're going to let the ends justify the means.
1: Yeah, great analysis, Thomas, great analysis.
2: So, Dad, most charismatic, what you got? Uh, Lisa L. Again, this is another one of my celebrity crushes at the time. I thought she was really? absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I first saw her in uh, her first big role, which was one of the other officers in uh, in training, flight training, an officer and a gentleman with uh, Richard Gere. And so she actually was in two of the biggest films of that the late 70s and okay. early 80s. Okay, I guess I
0: haven't seen that movie.
2: I didn't know she was in it. Yep. And um, after this film, she kind of fell off the face of the earth. Apparently, she kind of got upset the fact that she was in these two huge blockbusters and then kept getting basically offered roles, which were B films where she was naked half the time and and basically gave up Hollywood and moved away and never took another job after about 1996 or 7.
0: Daryl, who would you have as most charismatic?
2: Well, that's a good one. Uh, I'm gonna,
1: I am going gonna—I can't remember his name, but I'm going to go with the character that played uh, Victor Maitland, the, the villain.
0: Oh, Stephen Burkoff,
1: yeah. Yeah, yes, Stephen Burkoff. I, think so. I say that because he's a very underrated actor, been in a lot of movies before and after this. But this particular character he played, he presents himself as being a very suave, very um, uh, good person, a citizen, a, the top art dealer in the last 10 years in the U.S. And uh, he portrays himself as a front, that he's a very legitimate businessman, but at the same time... He's selling drugs, using the coffee grounds to get his drugs through the customs. And this the way he, he presented himself and the way his character was, oh, you think he's a great guy, a nice guy, but you don't realize that he's a criminal, a big time criminal that would kill for anything he needs to keep his interest. Uh so I think he was um in that regard his portrayal, but at the end, obviously he succumbs to a few bullets.
0: No, of course. And keeping with the theme of the eighties, he is the most Russian-looking, Russian-sounding bad guy that isn't actually credited with being a Russian. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. Who was yours? So, I think this was a runaway that it was Eddie Murphy, and I thought you guys would have agreed. Since we're, neither of you nominated Murphy for it, I, I'll just go ahead with this as well. I think there's a reason that he is the only man at the time that had the number one song... I think movie and TV show or something like that all all at the same time. And he was a cultural touchstone. The amount of talent that, that the guy had. You go back to some of the old SNL clips. I can guarantee you, I've gone and watched some of the ones that from like 1975 with Chevy Chase, and they're god awful. Like the comedy is aged so poorly. But you go back and watch some of those early Eddie Murphy clips, and it's so like night and day, his comedy style, his ability to do different things. And you, you could see that even reflected because of the same routine still worked when he did the Christmas episode, I think two years ago or something like that, yeah, maybe yeah. around the Christmas uh, 2019. Yeah, that was probably. such a great episode. And he just basically redid a lot of the characters that he had had, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So I, I think he's a special comedian, I think he's a special actor and performer, and he makes a lot of the starring roles in this movie, but he invites you into his world. His laugh is enthusiastic and engaging, and this being the first starring vehicle of his movie career, it's not easy to wonder exactly why his next six movies ended up also at number one as well, because I think once everybody saw this one, they're like, all right, I'm buying stock in this guy.
1: You know, Thomas, you are so round right the hand. I go back to in Saturday Night Live, especially with the kid Skid with James Brown with the hot tub, hot tub scene. Mister Rogers, uh, when he uh, played that, uh, guy that pip, so I got a tip. Somebody call a number if you are home, oh, whatever, whatever. Call my number, whatever. All those characters he played on Saturday Night Live, he saved Saturday Night Live. When he came in nineteen eighty, Saturday Night Live was on the verge of going going under. He he, seemed like he saved Saturday Night Live for the four years he was there. And when he did this movie. He had to leave the show. This made him a superstar. But I'ma say that the move the one that kicked it off, Don't Wanna Forget This, is 48 Hours for him and Nick Nolte. I mean, that was a movie that anyway, he played a great movie in this one, but this one took him to a Superstar status, like I mentioned before. And um when he left Sarah Night Live, uh, he had to leave at the time. It just he couldn't he couldn't do both of the same. So there's no way. He got to be too big.
0: Oh, well, I definitely. The one I guess I had as a backup, and I'll just throw in, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but was Judge Reinhold, because I think he's the nice, bumbling character that's not confident, but that you just uh, love because he's the lovable loser kind of of this movie. He just makes so many errors and mistakes, but he's gullible, and it just makes you kind of want to be his buddy, even though he seems to mess up on the regular. All right. So let's move over to best scene
2: then. Uh, Dad, what is your first nominee? The uh, first, uh, the victor's office ultimately getting thrown through the plate glass window. Yeah,
0: that was the first one I had down too. I thought it would kind of set the tone for what the movie was going to be about, but also as was a nice MacGuffin to move the plot along. Why'd you have it down?
2: I just thought the, the, the scene gave Murphy an opportunity to to uh, show that he was going to be able to stand up to this guy, kind of put the things in motion that were going to be necessary, where it was going to be clear that uh, Maitland was going to have a difficult time dealing with him, and uh, it was just going to continue throughout the film, this uh, the sparring that takes place in that office, and then ultimately uh, the muscle being used to try to placate or to... Uh, reduce uh, murphy's opportunities or abilities to foil
0: yeah i certainly had this down I, i think there's something that we didn't mention in murphy's performance before but one of the things that you really have to be able to do well in these action comedies is transition between serious and silly but be effective on both and he could obviously do the silly. We got it throughout with all these characters in different situations where he was off the cuff. But you also have to be able to play the straight, serious cop when you need to be. And you're interrogating the bad guy because you have to be believable in that situation as well. And I think this is this being the first showdown gave you a glimpse into how that part of the relationship or that relationship throughout the movie was going to have to play out. Darrell, what was the first nominee you had down?
1: Uh, I'm going to go with the scene when they went to the strip club.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Eddie
1: Murphy was boogie and shaking his himself, having a good time while the cops tagged it, or that guy ass had to be the straight guy and everything when the woman was coming around him. But he was able to enjoy himself, like having a good time. But also, he was able to fall a potential robbery there. He was able to spot out the guys. So see this guy's, you see these guys in a little trench coat, you know saying in this july they wearing trench coats he went up there like he knew the guy like he was a you know drunk guy whatever he went up there to him and um they end up following the crime so he was able to be silly but be serious at the same time and be able to do two things at the same time which i think is not easy to do in that type of role in that scene to be honest
0: no and i think that's an underrated scene for another particular piece as we move the plot forward there seems to be mile markers throughout most of this movie, but that's the one where he starts to get Taggart more on his side because he has to slowly uh, ingratiate himself with each one of the police force to get them on his side to ultimately side or solve the crime at the end of the movie. This is the scene he's already gotten Billy kind of on his side in order to get them to the strip club. But now Taggart by this point can see, okay, this guy's a serious cop. He's also incredibly talented to be able to notice these things and to be able to identify the crime ahead of time. It also is just a fun scene because it's <laughs> something that you wouldn't expect in in most movies. Very true. All right, so the next one I had down is one we kind of already talked about, so I won't belabor the point, but his check-in at the Beverly <laughs> Palms and his... Uh, I don't, I don't want to put this, but... It's rant. Well, it's, it's a monologue, but the way he does it in playing the race card and being able to use white people's fears against them is actually a really good observation by him in order to get away with some stuff. And we kind of credit him... There, there are all these little placements. When he gets away with something like that, we're even more engaged by the character. That, okay... You got away with something, and as the audience, we also know you're getting away with something, so we feel like we're getting away with something, too. So, Dad, what was the next one you had down? The the banana
2: scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that was my next one, too. Oh, man, yeah, that was funny.
2: Everything from having the waiter bring the stuff down and get them distracted by having them give it with dinner and then putting the bananas in the tailpipe.
0: I think it's one of the most iconic things from this movie. Because you know, much like American Graffiti, that some kid has probably tried this once or twice to see if they can get it to work. You're right about that. All right, so the next one I had down then was uh, Customs. Uh, I just, again, it's him playing certain characters and being able to get away with stuff. But how many people can just walk into a warehouse where you have a bunch of government agents and be able to have the confidence to get them to all believe that you are there to criticize their jobs. There are not many people who could pull it off, and he did it convincingly.
1: I agree with you. And, he, and it was all, they were all scared of him, like, oh, man, he's really an agent. Not technically, he's only just a cop.
0: Well, and they even did the, the nice little nuance of having somebody question whether or not he actually was legitimate, and then him just overpowering it by getting even angrier. So Dad, what was, do you have any other scenes to nominate?
2: Uh the the closing scene or the, the the well it's not quite Victor's house and that whole thing of uh The final shootout the final shootout um more than anything just watching um <laughs> Taggart and uh Billy bumble around there break right down to Billy uh drop your arms, you're under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and they did such a great job of
0: splicing in that level of comedy between the two of them while also creating a really tense action sequence uh, between Eddie Murphy and Jonathan Banks. And just when he gets Jonathan Banks, then Maitland ends up shooting him. And I I think the way that they had that all laid out as far as timeline and sequencing, I think it's still a great final uh, action sequence for an 80s movie. Uh, the only other scene I had nominated was the one I also nominated for my favorite scene, and that was the one I already talked about, the buffet scene, where he gets to play Ramon. I, I That was probably the funniest part of the movie to me, and so it's just kind of a small personal favorite. I, I quite literally laughed out loud when I uh, saw that again, because I had completely forgotten about it. Dad, uh, do you have any other nominees, or do you want to move to your favorite? Uh, Bogamel Lies. Oh, yes, the, end, the the far ending part of it. You just lied your ass off. <laughs> and again, I think it's a good excuse for why Cox is my secondary performer because to get him to that point, he has to do a lot of heavy lifting and seem believable that he's willing to allow Axel to kind of, all right, I'm on your side finally, instead of trying to do my job as... You know, I, I was by the book to start this movie. I'm not quite by the book by the end of it. Uh Darryl, what was your favorite scene then?
1: The ending scene when he said uh it would be my treat, we'll go somewhere real nice and he winked the the an him in the end and at, oh, that, the ending footage, you knew that he was about to get to some get those guys more into mischief. But before that Tagger said, you know, this you know, he told he told Rosa, let's, let's relax. Don't be so, so tight, let's relax. So I saw that Tagger was following truly on, actually fully on Eddie Murphy's side in the movie. They became, they, they formed a the friendship.
0: Yeah, and I think it certainly sets up where we can pick up eventually. If anybody's familiar with this, they know that there are at least a second and third movies to this, and I, I think it's a good fitting
2: stop to this movie. But, uh, Dad, favorite scene? The action sequence in Victor's house. I just, it's so always... And I'll tell you, that's the most indelible moment for me because it just that's the scene I always remember the most. And when I was watching the film, um, that's the one scene that I did remember. And it's been a number of years since I've seen the film.
0: I know that the show has been off the air for about five years. But when you can take a scene and make it something they have to test on Mythbusters, I think that's pretty indelible. And so for me, it's the banana in the tailpipe. Because I think, if, if anything, you say the banana in the tailpipe, there are a good half of the population that probably know what movie you're referencing.
2: So what did Mythbusters find?
0: Uh, apparently, and I did look this up during the course of watching the movie again, it just ends up shooting the fruit out. It builds up enough gas that it'll shove it back out. Very rarely will it get clogged enough that it will end up shutting off the engine. Okay. So, most indelible for you, Daryl? Man, that's a good question. Um, just the
1: fact that from a city, he was in from a different city to go to another city to solve a murder investigation. And he was able to show off this promise that he had that he didn't show fully in Detroit, but he showed it when he went to another city in a different, a new element as an outsider, he showed why he was a great cop.
0: I think there's a really good argument to be made that, broader than just the movie itself, you could say the most indelible moment is mid-1980s Eddie Murphy. Again, this being the first of his real starring vehicles that kind of propelled him to being the A-lister that he was through pretty much the rest of the 80s. Oh yeah, I agree with
1: you, I agree with you. And also the soundtrack, I don't the soundtrack, but the soundtrack is pure 80s. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we haven't really discussed that a ton, but this is probably one of the better, uh, I guess, non-scored movie soundtracks that I can remember. Other than the Axel F track that was created for the movie, a lot of this is just really good pop selections that ended up becoming hits because the movie was so good. And they really ended up blending well with everything that was going on in the movie at the time. I have to say, it's it's a great use of music in this particular thing because I more than anything else, that that is iconic to how this movie kind of plays out. It gives you a certain tone throughout. Oh, phenomenal! But they also had songs
1: by Patti Labelle, who's a big R&B star. Pointer Sisters. Uh, they had a uh, Glenn Glenn Foley made "Rest in Peace" or Glenn Fry with the opening song "The Heat Is On." Uh, it was a good mixture of pop and R&B at that time, the mid '80s. It just and, and the music fit each scene appropriately too.
0: Well, this is a natural stopping point for us. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this
2: week? Yes, we do. We lost two. Uh, Lisa Baines, uh, an actress who is known for her work on Broadway and television, but she also had parts in Gone Girl, Cocktail, and A Cure for Wellness. Um, She passed today after uh, suffering uh, several weeks ago a traumatic brain injury when she was run over by a hit-and-run motorcycle driver in a crosswalk in New York City. We also lost Ned Beatty this week. Superman the movie, Toy Story 3, Network, Rudy, and Shooter, but best known for his first film role, Deliverance. Uh, He was 83.
0: He's been a great villain in a lot of things. He's the bumbling sidekick to Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor in the Superman movies. He uh, was a great villain in Toy Story 3. He was, he's just kind of a, a character actor all over the place that had some really good roles. He has a pivotal scene in network that is more prescient than almost anything else in the movie and just still floors me when I watch it. So if you want to remember either of these two, please find their work I'm currently streaming wherever you get your movies, I guess.
2: Lisa Beans is most uh, recently known for having uh, a recurring piece on Seth MacFarlane television show, The Orville.
0: And I know that it has somewhat of a cult following currently, so I'm sure that'll have a complicated way of dealing with her unfortunate passing. Okay, then let's turn to best funniest lines. Daryl, as our guest, we will give you first crack.
1: Wow, so many in this movie. When he went to the uh, when he first went to uh, the uh, art gallery to see Jenny Summers, they talked to Bronson Pinchot's character uh, Serge, or Sarge, and he said, uh, "How much you sold this uh, piece for?" I said, 130 he, he said, get the fuck out of here.'" He said, "No, I can't." <laughs> that whole dialogue was just, it was so going back and forth. Well so and he's so, and he got his name wrong Some the aqua before started to see her. That whole scene with the soul is is hilarious. From beginning to end for that scene.
0: Classic Eddie Murphy. Dad, what's your first
2: one up? Disturbing the peace? I got thrown out of a window. What's the fucking charge for getting pushed out of a moving car, huh? Jaywalking? <laughs> oh my god. It's
0: hilarious. First one I had up, I've already done, but tell Victor that Ramon, the fella he met about a week ago. All right, Dad, what did you have down next? Police, you're all under arrest. Taggart, you do that again, I'll shoot you myself. Next one I had down, Detective Rosewood. Wow, you know, it says here that by the time the average American is 50, he has five pounds of undigested red meat in his bowels. Taggart, why are you telling me this? What makes you think that I have any interest in that at all? Well, you eat a lot of red meat. Do you have any others, Daryl?
1: Now I'm to try to find what I can actually remember word for word, but uh, I can't think of anything, anything else word for word.
2: Sure. Dad. <laughs> uh, pulling into the uh, country club. Uh, can you put this in a good spot? Because all of this shit happened last time I parked in here. <laughs> oh, man. Axel, before I go, I just want
0: to say one thing. The Supercop story was working, and you guys just messed it up. I'm still trying to figure you guys out, but I haven't yet. But it's cool, though. You just fuck up
2: a perfectly good lie. You have any others, Dad? This is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in my life. This thing's nicer than my apartment. (laughs) All right, so let's turn our attention then to the
0: Stanley rubric. Dad, usually we have one of us go first. Do you want to take Legacy?
2: Yeah, I will. You know, because we've divided it and kind of doing it in two different parts, five and five. And uh, the legacy, I gave a 4.5 for uh, Eddie Murphy because he's become such an iconic celebrity. So I gave it the legacy for him for that. When I'm looking more at the legacy of the film itself, it's faded quite a bit over the last decade. This was a huge film. Everybody watched over and over. And I think this has become kind of an afterthought to a lot of people at this point. I don't think there's a younger crowd that really migrates or watches it as much. Uh, I think people of my generation will, oh, it's on. I'll sit and watch a bit of this and go, oh, boy, this really was funny. I forgot how funny this film really was. So to that extent, it's kind of faded It's not quite as iconic as some of the comedies. I mean, I think Caddyshack has carried uh, an iconic level more because it's kind of in the, it's one that everybody knows more than this. So I went with a 3.5 on that, so 7.5 for Legacy.
0: Okay. So similar to you, and I know we've been kind of dividing this in half, usually between the industry and then the audience or the culture at large. I think I ended up having bigger in the next category impact significance in the short term than I did in legacy, because I agree with you that over time, this movie has kind of faded as frankly, Eddie Murphy's kind of gone out of the the spotlight. I know he had that huge starring return that we talked about a few minutes ago with SNL uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the Christmas episode that everybody loved. But as a starring vehicle, what has Eddie Murphy done since he basically started doing animation? He did Mulan, then he did the four Shrek movies. And outside of that, I don't think anybody un- or under the age of maybe 25 knows him for anything other than his animation work. Because they just don't watch older classic films. His starring roles in the 80s are pretty much lost to most millennials at this point and don't know him at all. They know him by his voice work, but that's about it. So as an industry aspect of things, I I went with a three, because I don't think we can dismiss that this did spawn a couple of sequels. There's been a lot of talk of a fourth movie. I just don't know who the audience would be for that. As far as an audience, again, the Millennials... How many are going to be able to name any Eddie Murphy movie outside of Shrek or Mulan? And for the people that were part of that generation, is this even the movie of Eddie Murphy's that they would automatically identify him as? Is this the big movie of Eddie Murphy's career? To me it is, because I'm not as big on something like Coming to America or Harlem Nights or Boomerang or any of these other ones that uh, I know have cultural resonance with a certain crowd but aren't necessarily the ones... To me, this was always the my favorite of the Eddie Murphy starring vehicles. But I think the sheen is off the apple a bit. And so I went with three on both the industry and the audience for a total of six. Daryl, what do you think? Having kind of heard where we're at with how we define the category, what do you think that this movie has for Legacy out of 10?
1: Well, I agree with you and your dad. I think it's lost a scene or some side scene because... You know, granted, it came out 37 years ago, so we're getting close to 40 years. So I think uh, legacy-wise, out of a 10, I'm going to give it probably a 5 based on that. It's still got some relevance. Unfortunately, I disagree with you when you said about you might not give it as much relevance, like Boomerang, Harlem Nights, uh, Coming to America, or other movies like, I guess, uh, The Nutty Professor. For me, for me being an African-American, those movies have played, still play residence in the black community. Even more, so movies have actually taken over, taken over in that community. I think compared to Beverly Hills Cop, in that regard, people outside my generation, your dad, my generation, Generation X, like millennials or younger, a lot of people don't know about Beverly Hills Cop or movies he did in the '80s, or even uh, coming the first coming to America.
0: Okay, so all right, so that makes the numbers work then. So then the average between the three of us ends up being a six point one seven. Uh, Impact Significance. And again, I think this is where if we told people just the category names, they might have it confused. But Impact Significance, we usually look at the very short term, so within the five years. And this is one, as I pointed out in my response before, that I think is a a bigger impact in the moment because it turned Eddie Murphy into the big, big movie star. Uh, Again, we talked about in the Did You Know section that this was the first of seven films that opened at number one for him. This was part of this just absolute like huge cultural moment for him overall. So just from an industry wide thing, and then we also talk throw in the sequels or any of the other things that came about for uh, other people surrounding this. It's, but it's mostly Eddie Murphy. But you want to throw in the soundtrack uh, with the amount of hits that came out of this, as far as Billboard's concerned, or the Grammy Awards, uh, getting nominated for an original screenplay for an action comedy. I I think that this actually scores fairly high on really both metrics. I gave it a four for the industry out of five, and I gave it a five out of five for the audience. Again, it's hard to understate, and I probably don't understand it being born in 1990 as to what the imprint of Eddie Murphy was in the mid-80s, but I think that it's pretty easy to say a five, so I ended up with a nine out of ten. Uh, Daryl, let's go to you. What do you think impacts significance kind of in that short-term area?
1: I agree. I think in the five-year radius, it had a huge impact because it, it lost him to become the superstar he was and so he left Saturday Night Live. I think industry-wise, I'm going to give it a five out of five. For that one, legacy in that five-year radius, I'm going to give it a five out of five. So overall, 10 out of 10.
0: Dad, did you agree or did you end up
2: going a little bit low or south of that? I went a little bit lower than the two of you, and this is why. From the industry standpoint, I did go with a 5. But from the public standpoint, I went with a 3.5. because Really? Okay. Yes, because, see, I grew up in this time frame. And if you were my age or slightly older, Eddie Murphy was hilarious, and this movie was hilarious. For people that were older, like my parents they had a harder time relating to this because the idea, and it didn't have to necessarily be racially, just the idea of a smart mouth cop just kind of rubbed middle-class America the wrong way a bit. And I, I know that there was quite a few people who commented that they did not like Eddie Murphy. They did not like John Belushi. They did not like, because they didn't quite understand the comedy and especially the comedy coming out of Saturday Night Live in the late 70s and early 80s.
0: To be fair, and this is just slightly to push back on that, I think that all of that comedy was directed at them to begin with. For them to not like it is probably expected. I I don't think this was targeted at them. And here's the other thing, and this is where you and I start to age ourselves a little bit, that we're feeling older. It's really people that are in their teens to I guess uh, early 40s that really define culture most of the time, which is, and I tend to be an older person when it comes to even things like social media, since I don't even have a TikTok account yet and really don't feel the need to get one, even though everybody keeps telling me I need to be on there, but they define what culture is. I will not understand why kids growing up now want to be YouTube stars, but okay, I guess that's where culture's gone. But even so, the average between the three of us then is 9.17. Let's go to novelty. Daryl, I'll let you have the first one, or first crack at this one. Novelty, right? Yes.
1: In terms of what, what degree?
0: So novelty, when we think about it, it's especially for comedy, is it pushing certain boundaries? Is it making new waves in cinema? whether it's a genre or how the film was technically made, musically. Basically, is there anything really new about this film at the time that it came out? Is it capturing something? uh, Or did it reinvent a category or the way people thought about certain movies? You know, it's, it's basically adding to those types of things, such as, for example, we had, I think, one of the highest novelty scores we've had was uh, either Some Like It Hot, which is about two guys, two comedians, more or less, or two actors, cross-dressing in a period piece that's already in 1959, which is, is incredibly novel for the time, given that we're still having issues of uh, transgender rights and comfortability and that sort of thing in 2020, let alone what they were trying to portray in the 1920s. You know, the other aspect being that, as far as novelty, another high one that we had was something like Alien, which kind of reinvented the space genre from where we had been, even with Star Trek or Star Wars, where they were either action or adventure vehicles, as opposed to that one, which turned out to be more of a horror type of genre.
1: Okay, that's great then. Okay, in that case... What it did, novelty-wise, what it did, it was the first that I know of the first time an African-American, a black man that was a a a comedic star was able to do a big hit movie that truly crossed over, not only in the black audience, but through the white audiences, universal across all racial groups, all age groups for the most part, generous, what have you, and the soundtrack, it fit into the mid-80s. It was just perfect for the, especially 84, which is one of the greatest years of the 80s period.
0: Dad, what did you have done? Oh, excuse me. Daryl, what was your score? out of 5? Five, uh, 5 out of, out of ten. 5. Oh, 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 on novelty? Oh yeah, I think so. 10 out of 10.
2: Deb? This one was a difficult one for me because there had been these action comedies before and a lot of them through the years, but there was nothing that was in this vehicle where... Really, the comedy was in part the white cops, you know, with the stick up their rears, by the book. And Murphy being the basic center of this, the one pushing the envelope through the entire film. To that extent, this was one of the first times I remember a film starring a black man where you tended to not think about him by the end of the movie as being a black man. You just think of him as a comic in a great vehicle to show off his talents. So I had to give it points down because just the nature of it, but I had to give it points up by the, you know, the fact it was Murphy and how it was done and, and uh, his position and such. So I ended up going with a seven for novelty for that reason. Because originally it was going to be about a five and a half. And then I started thinking about, you know, when I watched the film for the first time and uh, losing track, you know, because it was always a big deal when I was a kid. You know, there was only a handful of African-Americans on television, Bill Cosby, Flip Wilson, and, you know, in film it was 48. And that was about it. And then you had Richard Pryor, and he was dangerous because you never knew what he was going to say or do. And this one became palatable for a wide audience of people, and you actually lost track. It no longer became uh, an issue of race uh, in this film that had been not quite the the circumstances in previous film.
0: I came down... Uh, almost exactly in the same way that you did. It didn't invent buddy cop movies or action comedies or anything like that. I think you could point to something like the TV shows of the 70s. You had things like Starsky and Hutch that you could kind of point to as the buddy cop situation. But the racial element of this, I grew up on movies like Rush Hour, and this movie was ahead of that and basically gave you the archetype to be able to do something like that, where yes, race is a factor. It's an element in how the movie plays out. You have two people coming from different cultures and backgrounds meeting and having to form a team. And by extension, being able to weave comedy throughout it by pointing to the differences and not taking it too seriously, where you might be able to get away with a stereotype joke here or there. I don't think this movie necessarily does that, but you can use it to your advantage. And I think there are elements of how, Each kind of uh, city culture versus high society, more or less, does play out a lot in this movie, even though it's boiling under the surface. And I also have to give both of you credit. Outside of maybe Poitier, there just are not a lot of other movies to this point with leading black movie stars. You might have had something like Louis Gossett Jr., and I think that's Officer and Gentleman. Yeah, he won the Oscar. And I think Prince's Purple Rain came out before this. But other than that, like this is really where you kind of turn the corner because this is ahead of Morgan Freeman or Denzel or any of the Samuel L. Jackson where you really had some of the guys that I grew up with as leading stars or co-leads in a lot of movies. So I gave it a seven as well. It ends as an average between us all as an eight. But again, I can't put it at the top with the most novel of things, but you got to give it credit for the places where it really did make some strides. Uh, Let's go to classicness. And this might be one where both of you will likely disagree with me. There were only a few moments to me that were as funny as I remembered it being. Uh, I don't think some of the comedy has aged as well. It doesn't mean the movie was less enjoyable for me because I still... It, because it's a lighthearted comedy action movie, I can still watch the movie with the same amount of fervor. I just don't think the jokes all work the same way to me. But then again, I'm a bit of a comedy snob. I a did bit? end up taking... Yeah, I know. I, I was trying to underplay it a little bit. but So I, I knocked a couple of points off just on that. Eddie is a charismatic leading man, though. You got to give it an extra point. Banana in the pale- Tailpipe as a gag. Doesn't actually work when you do it in real life, but it being an iconic moment, I go back and forth. The one really, and again, this stuck out to me. Uh, I guess ahead of its time moment, and I have to take it in the same context of I watched Delirious, which came out before this, and that is an extremely cringy stand-up routine for somebody that is uh, very liberal like myself with the way that he talks about AIDS and the amount of homophobic jokes that are in there to then be able to pretty confidently and easily throw in that Ramon, uh, monologue. I think I, I just weigh the two against each other. So I ended up at a 6.5 overall in my scoring. Uh, Daryl, what do you think?
1: You know, well, you're not, I, I agree with you a lot of ways, Thomas, and what you said about iconic, like, like uh, things that was funny, and that maybe not age as well. I'm going to say this, that it was some scenes in the movie that were funny, like the Ramon scene, you know, and a Banana in the Tailpipes, stuff like that. But to be honest, like, Coming to America was a movie that, I know I know it was, hard, that was, it was funnier watching that even after the fact, compared to Beverly Hills Cop. And I think that um, you got to look at it, it's the mid-80s, now we're in 2021, so some of the things you, you can say back then, you can't say now. You can't get away with it. I, out of 10, I'm going to give it maybe a Uh,
2: 6.5. Okay. Dad, what did you think? Well, I'm going to make it easy for you. I may have 6.5 as well. Oh, good lord. I didn't think I would end up hitting this on the head. (laughs) And my problem was the homophobic aspect of this. I thought the jokes held up pretty well for a a 40 or almost a uh, 40 year old movie. And uh, why in the world did you have to make Damon Wayans into a, a uh, you know, a, a homosexual with a lisp when he's handing out bananas. Good point. Good point. Good point, Dana. Very good. Well, I, I wonder why that too. Well, obviously it was playing up the, the homosexuality aspect of it. So it's a homophobic joke. And I'm sure at the time they kind of thought it was funny and it probably was to them. and But it's just, just different times. And so that one, that one scene in the Ramon scene were what really marked it down to me. Um, and of course, you know this always is the same thing. The female lead is always, always got to be the one with the gun held to her head, and that's oh, yeah. how he's going to get yeah. away. Oh, and yeah. of course, I will give it one credit, which is, is that Lisa Albacher ended up hitting him and for and dropping to the floor which allowed the shots to come in and kill him uh but it's still it just was Well, here are all the guys coming to save little old me yeah i'm starting to know,
0: notice a few patterns you tend to be much more outraged by some of the the female portrayals as opposed to some of the modern liberal ticks that i do but we still somehow cover all of the nuanced bases. On that Damon Wayans part, though, and I'm just going to mention this, not that I'm arguing with your point because it's taken, but I think the way I took it and why I didn't make it in my commentary is I think in some ways that was a joke on Beverly Hills also at the time. Yes, it is making him gay for no apparent reason other than to just throw that in there, but The amount of people that were gay in Los Angeles in the mid 1980s, I think it was indicative of how people stereotyped California. And we're just starting to deal with AIDS culture and just uh, allowing gays to be a thing we're talking about as opposed to completely in the closet like Rock Hudson. Maybe that's something to throw in there. I'm just going to add it in. It's not to argue the point.
1: You know, Thomas, you bring a great point because back then, you know, I was five years old back then. Back then, being that you are gay or homosexual was not chic. I mean, you want to keep that way from people. Now it's more acceptable to be that you're gay and you're, and then Brock Hudson coming out the next year saying he had AIDS. That really put a uh, magnifying glass on AIDS and the culture and that made people more skeptical and more conservative and everything like that as a side note. But I think that was a sign of times because, you know, it was a beginning of AIDS culture. And it was just something that things you can say then you can't say now. It's pretty much almost saying.
0: All right. So that takes us to the last category for ourselves. That's rewatchability. Our guest nominated this movie to do. We will give you the first crack. I would assume this is high on your rewatchability scale.
1: Ah, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> um, I'm not going to give it a full 10 out of 10. I'm going to give it. Um, A 9.75. Never gets old.
0: Dad, uh, I know that you're not a big fan of pretty much anything out of the 80s, which, given when you grew up and that's the the decade you graduated high school and went to college in, but... uh, Not to mention law
2: school. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know. There's There's a huge aspect of the 80s which I just thought was contrite and stupid. And yet you call me
0: the contrarian.
2: Yeah, well... I, yeah, I I often said I was born in the wrong time frame because, yeah. But anyway, um, Rewatchability, I gave it a straight seven. It, it's a film that I think is funny and enjoyable to watch. It's just not something that you need to watch on a, you know, like consistent basis. You, every year or two, this is a film that you can sit down and just kind of, if you've got an afternoon open and you're, just kind of kicking back. This is a f- good film to just stick on and rewatch. And I think the time lapse makes it funnier. I had forgotten a lot of the jokes in here since it's been probably at least 15 years since I'd seen it again. And the jokes were, were funny, and I had uh, a couple of lap out loud moments in there. Uh, so to that extent, that's why I went with a 7.
0: I ended up at an 8.5. I wouldn't, I've reserved a lot of things for my nines list. Uh, I've reserved a lot of things for my 9.5, and there are very few, but I know exactly the ones that are on my tens list. This falls just below that because, again, I haven't revisited this movie in a while, but I popped it on and I remembered immediately exactly why I've seen it probably at least a half dozen times. And it's a very easy movie to watch, and it's not overly long. It doesn't feel like it drags at all. It's very flowing. It, you don't need to be in a certain mood to watch it. It's just enjoyable and easily digestible. So 8.5 seems about right as far as I'm concerned. So between us, that ends up in an 8.42. For the audience score, we had 93% of Google users. Surprisingly enough, for a movie that I would have considered more popular, 82% only on Rotten Tomatoes for their audience score, leaving us an 875 And that adds up to a total of 47.54 and just under The Bridge on the River Kwai on the list. Interesting. That's why we like doing the list. Movies that you would have never thought to pair against each other. An Oscar winner from 1957 versus a 1984 Eddie Murphy vehicle. All right. So that takes us to remaining questions. I think this movie does a really good job of wrapping up and completing most of the loop on all of the story arcs for the most part. I had one remaining question, but did, I'll let either of you take the first crack at this.
2: Uh, do you, either of you have any remaining questions? Well, about the film itself, no. But about the broader impact of the film, I do. And that is, what went wrong because when you look at how big a stars these were, Judge Reinhold, other than these films, basically flamed out. Lisa Eilbacher left Hollywood, and Eddie Murphy did this, and then he did Coming to America, and then he did The Nutty Professor, and a bunch of those films that were really not that good or funny. Don't forget about Okay, hold on, hold don't on. About, hold don't
1: on. forget about Knights and The Golden Child. Don't forget about
2: the movies. Oh, okay, but... This this was kind of almost like the or like the peak of his career. By the time he's doing Shrek, um, his a lot of his films were not were not making a lot of money. Okay, let's let's call
0: this, and I might agree with you that it's the peak. Although I think some people would argue Coming to America might be the peak, and I I give it credit. For me, this is the Eddie Murphy movie that I automatically associate. Just and that's from where I sit. But Eddie Murphy, the next six movies he made after this were all number one hits. So I I don't think you can really say that. He's the only one that comes out well from this movie, with the exception that the next movie or the next sequel, in some people's minds, is even better than this movie. I agree with
1: that. I agree with that.
0: But I will say that it's a far cry from his low point of his career in orbit.
2: Oh my yeah. yes! I, I, no, yes. Uh, I, that's where I was ultimately going to go with this, but in and, and the point I've made, and I've made this point a lot, in music and in acting and all aspects of life, it is very hard to stay on top because in order to get there, you have to be so laser focused, expend so much energy, have just absolute luck, and be able to take those things and just drive them into success. It is very hard for you to remain there. You, you just lose that drive or desire to, to, to continue. And especially, I think more than anything, that destroyed Eddie Murphy's career was Shrek. Because he made so much money off of that film, he never had to worry about working again. What, what Where would you ever have creativity after that? So Beverly Hills Cop
0: is his best-performing live-acting movie in his career, by far. But all four of the Shrek movies finished ahead of this. Even the worst-performing Shrek movie out-earned this one at least two to one.
1: Yeah, the animation is
0: huge, Thomas. Oh, I know. The the cultural... I, I... really want to tackle Shrek at some point here because we're on a kind of an anniversary area with that movie having come out around this time, about 20 years ago. But that movie was huge, yes. huge. Was and the sequel I think was like the uh, highest grossing sequel of all time. When it originally came out, I remember watching that in like 2004 on vacation, but when you're talking about Shrek the Third and Shrek the Fourth, and they're out producing uh, Beverly Hills Cop, I mean, you know, that there's a slight difference because I don't want to say that voice actors don't have to do as much work because I think there's a lot that goes into voice acting, and those guys do a lot of long recording sessions. But it's not the same, and the hunger's probably gone when you can sit on the residuals from that forever. And don't forget, don't forget about Mulan. He was a Mulan oh, too. Very yeah. successful movie. Yeah, uh, it still is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with Disney Plus and everything else that oh, at this point.
1: Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: So I let's take it to my only remaining question, and the only thing of the movie that I, I had to really sit and think for a good 10 to 15 minutes to come up with this one, because I don't think anybody cares by the time we get to the end of the movie. But uh, what does Jenny do for work now? Oh, good question. She was plucked out of obscurity to be a curator at an art gallery for the biggest uh, art dealer in the United States for the last 10 years, according to the movie lines. Now, does she get another job as an art dealer or because she was connected with Victor Maitland, is she basically blackballed? Good question. Good question. Something had to happen to all the art that he owned. I suppose that's fair, but don't you think that would be confiscated? Because it could be a part of a laundering scheme?
2: Well, good luck proving it.
0: And who are his heirs? Also, Thomas, you
1: mentioned a good point. In the third one, I don't know if you saw the the third one. uh, Surge, played by Bronson official was in the third one. And he ran into Eddie Murphy at at a gun show. And he kind of alluded to that about how all the galleries got shut down. But Victor Malin got, when he killed my boss, Victor Malin, all of them got shut down, I think. He said something like that in in the third movie.
0: Again, I don't think most people are going to think very much about that question by the time we get to the end of the movie. And it took me a while just to come up with that one. But just something that's probably unanswerable.
1: And can I give my uh, my question real quick? Remaining question? My remaining question is that, I think we talked about it before, but why has this movie lost its luster uh, in terms of um, cultural relevance and also popularity? Why has it lost that on both ends? That's I'm curious why has it not had the same appeal that it might have had 15, 20 years ago?
0: I think comedies are a byproduct of the era that you watch them. And so the people that it resonates with when it first comes out, it's not going to have the same appeal. Uh, I think of some of the comedies that I grew up with that maybe in about 10 years will be almost completely forgotten about. And I'm talking, and I know we've covered at least Anchorman on this show a a couple of months back, but 40-year-old virgin, Wedding Crashers, uh, Knocked Up, all of those Apatow vehicles, uh, the Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson ones, any of the action comedies, Rush Hour, nobody's going to know what that is (laughs) in 20 years. Not, Not a soul. And I think even something like Caddyshack or Animal House, as my dad's generation either ages out or is less of a cultural reference. That's going to lose the same luster. It's just a matter of the timing on things. Comedy ends up aging in a way that drama becomes more timeless.
1: Well, what, about, what about what about what about American Pie? That's kind of a, a movie that came out in the '90s or the '2000s that might start losing luster. I'm, I'm part of the movie. I mean, I'm still alive in my generation. I can relate to that movie. What's going to lose some luster in the next 15 years.
0: But over the last five years, just from where, we, where we're sitting now, how many great comedy movies have come out?
1: Good question. Uh, and and that's
0: that's what I'm saying. Like, the last big comedy that I can remember coming out that was something that everybody was talking about is The Hangover. And that's already 12 years ago.
1: I didn't really get into that. I mean, the first one, maybe I didn't get into the second and third one. That's that just me, you know.
0: And that's fair but I'm just saying that that's the last time that like America collectively
2: paid attention to a comedy. I agree with that. Going back to Uh, your comment about animal house and Caddyshack and my generation. Well, eventually it's either going to be that we become senile and forget about them, or we watch them again and have forgotten that we watched them and it will be like hilarious again. So could be either way. Fair enough.
0: All right. Well, we want to say thank you, Daryl, for being on with us. Uh, before before you head off, uh, anything that you'd like to promote? I know you have your podcast, but anything else that you'd like to mention?
1: Uh, uh, first of all, thank you again for having me on, Thomas, and also Daniel. It's a pleasure being young. Uh, secondly, I just want to uh, let everybody know that my podcast airs the second and fourth Wednesday every month. And you can get anywhere on Spotify, Apple, Google, anywhere you get Spotify, and I also want to mention to you, Thomas, I'm going to try to work on something something out if I can work my schedule to have you on my podcast as return favorites, in a, hopefully before the end of the year.
0: Sounds good. Um, I'm certainly welcome to being on anybody's show. If uh, anybody listening has a show as well, please reach out. And I know Dana has been looking to get on a few shows himself, so uh, we're certainly open to all of that. Dad, any last thoughts for the week
2: before we go? No. Everyone stays safe. It's good to see that things are starting to return to some level of normalcy again. Thank you. Thank God.
0: I'm just going to mention one small thing. Since everybody's been inside for a while and I (laughs) tend to be very, very pale white, please uh, take care of your skin. The number one leading cancer in America is skin cancer and uh, you haven't been outside for a year, you may need to put on maybe some sunscreen or a hat. Just take care of yourself a little bit as we slowly reintegrate ourselves back into normalcy.
1: And on that final note, like your father said, I'm glad things getting back to normal. I know y'all, I'm in the Milwaukee area. There will be festivals this summer. Thank God for that, some festivals. And I think that people are starting to travel more. The spirits are picking up, father, which is great. I'm looking forward to even... Bigger things this year and even uh, going to 2022.
2: Well said.
0: Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. Next week, we will be covering a Bollywood classic, The Three Idiots. Check out realgood.com or the realgood app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R E E L G O O D.com. Again, Please like, follow, rate, and review or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is
2: Captivate FM.